Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in again to another mini-sode. We'll be getting to the episode here shortly, but I think I would be remiss not to start off with a short PSA of sorts. Thank you to Becky O'Sullivan for helping me with the words. I was just having trouble getting it right. The materialist podcast that is Becky and I are dedicated to the principles of anti-racism. And in this podcast, we try to highlight the history and humanity of diverse people throughout time. Our hearts are hurting for the family of George Floyd and the Minneapolis community and the African-American people across the country. We stand in solidarity with black, indigenous, and all people of color, and we strive to do our best to lift up and amplify their voices and stories through the topics we explore in this podcast. Archaeologists are privileged to do the work that we do, and we must be accountable to the communities we study. Black Lives Matter. On to the episode. Welcome to the Materialist Podcast, mini episode number eight. My little solo cast, short form podcast series here is winding down. There's only one episode after this, but the whole premise of the series is, is looking at some of the, the material culture that I surround myself with and have for years, these objects that I have, my wife and I have on these display shelves in our house. Um, and I started this mini-series uh, about two months ago, a little over two months ago or so, and I've had eight interviews, um, including the one that you're about to hear. And so it's been a really great opportunity to talk to a lot of artists and, and hear a lot of their backgrounds and not just hear about how they came to the art form of ceramics, but what is their motivations behind making objects and being creators and makers of material culture. So it's been really interesting. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to previous episodes, go back and give them a listen. They're really good and funny and poignant and, you know, good. <laughs> so to give a little time stamp, um, today is 6-2-2020 and I'm doing the intros and outros for the episode. And then I'll Go ahead and get it ready to publish this Friday, which will be Friday, June 5th. Um, I recorded the interview last week, last Friday on May 29th. And so, as you know, if you've been following the news at all, things are changing dramatically and getting pretty dark out there. So keep that in mind. Um, as you're listening, it does become relevant towards the end of the interview. So um, interview today is starring a couple, a power ceramic power couple, if you will, <laughs> Tammy Marinuzzi and Pavel Amroman from up in Panama City. Um, they're pretty uh, great folks, and what's really interesting that they don't mention in the interview is that Panama City, you know, Florida is just <laughs> next to Mexico Beach, Florida, which got nailed by Hurricane Michael a couple years back, and it dramatically decreased the the students that attend the the community college there in Panama City that Tammy and Pavel teach at. So it's it's it, Panama City is still reeling from a lot of this 
damage um, and uh, who knows when it's all going to go back to normal. And now on top of this, we have COVID-19. And now on top of that, we have the protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. So crazy times we're living in. If these podcasts kind of brighten your day, that's wonderful. If they are a little bit insightful, that's even more wonderful. Like I mentioned, this is second to last uh, episode of this little mini series. The next one is going to be interesting. All right, y'all. On with the show. Here is my conversation with Tammy and Pavel. Thank you for having us today. My name is Tammy Maranuzzi, and I am a professor of art at Gulf Coast State College. And this is my husband, Pavel. Oh, I too am a professor of art at the Gulf Coast State College, and I am her husband. We have together <laughs> for many, many years. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's important to distinguish that. That's very important. All right, so Pavel, I'm going to start with you, man. The whole premise of this mini-series is we have these shelves. You guys have been to our house. And so the whole point of this series is for me to like talk to some of these folks and find out a little bit more about some of these pots that we have. And I've been living around for years. I have one piece of Pavel's, this little tiny, probably what, four inches tall um, dog sculpture. And it's amazing and I love it. It's like a little chess piece. What is it about the dog's Part A. Part B is what is it about using clay as a vehicle of political expression? Like, is it because of the historical connection? What is it about making clay sculpture that appealed to you? So the last thing first, you know, clay, it was honestly clay. For, I came to clay out of necessity. I did my school in sculpture and it was, you know, bronze work. And, mm. you know, after you graduate, you kind of don't have much access to bronze. Right. <laughs> so I started doing, you know, so I started doing things in ceramics. Uh, I would go to my local community college and I would use their studios and I would make things out of ceramics. The way it relates to the work is, you know, to make it relate to the work, I changed the clay by this. So to make the historical reference, it went from earthenware that I, or, you know, I was doing earthenware, stoneware. Uh, but then I went strictly to porcelain, you know, to white clay, to white, you know, refined clay. And that's what, when I was making the historical connection to, you know, to historical parts. Uh, and that was, became a big part of the work because, you know, my, my work is a lot about socialization. So, you know, how do you make things acceptable? How do you work them in? How do you clean them up? And material and presentation was big, big, big part of that socialization, you know, how to make ugly things acceptable. So that's how the material jumped in. And your question about the dogs, I mean, I don't have particular affinity for dogs. I do have a dog now. I like it. <laughs> it's a very nice dog. But uh, it was a good vehicle because I needed a character that can be both cuddly and vicious, and I needed a character that can be trained. And I can be trained to do whatever it is that you want. Again, kind of socialization. In this case, it was for a dog. Uh, so that's why I picked that character. In my work, I often pick characters where I think, you know, like in any folklore, right, that you associate certain characters with a certain animal. So I would choose different animals when I wanted to talk about different things. And, you know, in this, dog, this case, the dogs were the perfect vehicle. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. So, Tammy, 
the terms cute and fun though are great descriptors for your work can also be kind of problematic in some ways because what's going on in the actual work is much deeper than that, right? Cute and fun are very simplistic, very superficial. They don't really explain the depth of what's going on. What kind of blows me away about your work, and we have a lot of it, is the emotions that are conveyed in these these figures. So talk a little bit about that, of like what you're trying to express by making these so these expressive faces, right? And I'll post some pictures in the show notes and in uh, on the Instagram and things about both of y'all's work so so listeners can can see what I'm talking about. Tammy makes these vessels that have these very expressive but cartoonish faces, I guess you'd say or mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think that I'm doing some things pretty intentionally when I make the characters so that people will think they're kind of cute. I find you know the color palette and some of the expressions and some of the sizes of the objects really approachable, right? So yes, at first I want people to be drawn to them because they're, you know, lightly colored and, and a fun size and something that you can hold in your hand. And then sometimes they're just that, you know, sometimes they're just a study of a shape or a form, but then, you know, I, I do consider myself a storyteller. So sometimes there's relationships or something happening between the, the pieces that go a little bit deeper. And through making this work that through making that work, I found out that people really didn't kind of pay attention, right? They didn't pay Mm. attention to those relationships. They reacted to them as objects or a cup, but they wouldn't, sometimes pay attention to the dynamics that were going on between the characters, right? So they would buy them and then they'll get them home. And maybe after a while of having them on their shelves, they will say, oh, there's something happening here. There's a relationship happening. And, and I feel like that is, speaks to um, relationships that we have between people right? That, you know, sometimes something's cute and cuddly and then you get it home and you're like, oh wait, that, that person <laughs> um, is not so cute and not so cuddly. That was the story with me. <laughs> yeah, I should send you she, that picture. She, she brought me home. He oh was furry, you know, and had a nice little accent and you know, and then I got him home and he was a bear. No, just yeah, baby. Yeah. Some people are <laughs> Anyways, into that, you know. Some you know, people are I into think that. so. <laughs> um, you know, so you can use the work as a way to, um, you know, get attract people, right? So those terms. I mean, I'm using, like I said, colors and sizes that will allure people in, but then hopefully, you know, the stories will um, prevail after a while or after them, you know, having them for a while. So, yeah, I guess that's what I can say about that. There's some intention. By the way, I don't think cute and fun are bad words. I think they should be used often, and I think it's a good quality for work to have. So they're not dirty. At least to me, they're not dirty words. It's not a bad way to describe something. And I agree with that, right? I mean, yeah. I, I would I would I would agree that you know and not all the work is cute and cuddly. Sometimes people say, "Wow, that's really disturbing," right when they look at it. So again, people have different interpretations of what cute is and what's cuddly. You know, just like in you know everyday relationships. You know, so some people get really disturbed by by just looking at it. And I was like, "Oh wow, I didn't think that was so you know so upsetting or so you know." So, yeah, everybody comes to things differently. Well, 
I think the grotesque and the not cute and not cuddly of like physical representation in ceramic vessels has a like a much larger history than like the cute and cuddly, you know? Um, so what uh-huh. kind of historical references were you looking at, Tammy, for, for, for those kinds of, I guess that kind of representation of story and relationships? Like where, where is that coming from historically, if it is at all? Well, a lot of the stories do come from my head. And I was um, speaking to somebody last week and I was saying that, you know, it's kind of my inner dental dialogue between relationships um, between people, you know. Um, But historically, I look at a lot of um, Mexican folk art, a lot of Mexican art. um, And I like that it's kind of the forms are really simplified, but that's for more forms. And I think what I reference a lot or what I like to what I'm influenced a lot by are stories. You know, I listen to like David Sedaris, right? Mm -hmm. Who is, I know that Cheyenne listens to David Sedaris, but you know, it's humor, but it's that humor with satire mixed into it. So a lot of the things that I read or listen to have that prevalent in the work. So like, you know, David Sedaris or Carl Heisen, people that kind of make fun or, you know, have these stories that kind of poke fun at, people. I think that, I don't want to say that I'm always doing that, but, you know, I find myself in my head always telling these stories and then seeing how far I can push it, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the work. So I do reference, like historically, I reference a lot of um, Mexican folk art, a lot of new Mexican folk art, and then in contemporary art, I listen to actually a lot of stories and I'll listen to a lot of writers or read a lot. Well, Pavel, to you, that a similar question, where, where historically are, are, are some of your references coming from? I know, th- I haven't seen a lot of your latest work. Um, you know, yeah, I know you, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about historically about using a physical representation like a ceramic object in communicating those kind of intense political messages? You know, like the influence for the dogs and really for the work I do now is, you know, like mice and, you know, like European porcelain, right? Uh, And really it's kind of, for me, like Baroque sculpture is something I look at a lot, you know. You know, but again, like very, very European, very gilded, very porcelain, very kind of over the top. Uh, And kind of, it's kind of, I'm not, too tied to that aesthetic right now, but I'm still working in white clay. I'm still kind of making pure forms. My uh, work right now is, uh, it's an ongoing series. It's called Greeks in Florida. So I'm trying to kind of combine, uh, like, you know, again, I'm like really like old, old European school. I'm, I'm still referencing Greek mythology, right? Because it's the same things, you know, people being inhumane to other people that, interests me it makes me hate people and <laughs> love people at the same time yeah uh, so, so that work that aesthetic and i just kind of put it into modern context so like you know like would like have a figure leader in a swan and uh, the swan becomes the flamingo right and the flamingo begins to eat leader so, and I'm sorry, Lida begins to eat the flamingo. So I'm like taking these myths and I'm turning them a little bit upside down. I'm introducing uh, the, you know, that Florida man element, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the Florida man. Oh, yes. The ridiculous <laughs> things that we do, we do down here. Yeah. 
So that seems to make a nice and interesting combination. So, you know, trying to fuse a little bit of humor, but still, again, my disappointment in mankind is usually the theme of my work. Well, and, you know, with that in mind, <laughs> what's happening now, right this second? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's, I'm both excited and scared to see how art expresses this situation in this time and place in the future um whether it's your art or other people's art that are doing things under similar motivations because it's so up <laughs> that it's it's yeah. as up as as some of these pots and references that you were just speaking of historically like that those things that were happening back then it's just this up now <laughs> like and so i'm really interested to see what oh, yeah. kind of art that folks are making in the future yeah me too <laughs> it, it's actually i don't know for me it's little, become a little bit more difficult <laughs> like the older i get the less i understand people uh, yeah. and like the, the, like i'm really like i don't know i guess when you're young you're kind of more assured of your views and <laughs> what you yeah. expect but the older I get, I'm like, okay, I just, I just can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Tammy, the other day when I first asked about y'all being on this podcast, um, you had mentioned about the time you spent in New Mexico. So tell me about that, like your experience with some of the Native American pottery that you encountered while you were in New Mexico. Well, so I went to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and that was a real different, I think, experience um, than um, a lot of people may have had to ceramics. So there was a fellow there named Bill Gilbert. He's not there anymore. He retired, but he was my instructor and he ran a lot of classes. So one of them that he ran and it was one of the first ceramics classes that I took was out on the Acoma Reservation. And um, I would take go out to the Acoma Reservation with a whole um, bunch of students every Friday. And we would stay there from about 9 o'clock in the morning till 4 or 5 in the evening. And we would work with a woman on the reservation, Maria. And we would make pots. And she um, only agreed to teach us kind of the traditional Acoma methods because it was dying within their culture right a lot of right. people had discovered pottery wheels and so they weren't interested in learning kind of the traditional way of making forms and so one of my first classes was taking this class so you'd go out and you dig clay every day um, and then you'd learn how to process it and then you'd learn how to build and a lot of the ways what I was talking to you about the other day is a lot of the ways that she taught me how to build is still how I build in my studio today and um, so whereas at the same time I was taking throwing classes something resonated um, in me or with me about this way of working, like going out, digging clay from the earth, sieving it, you know, that kind of, and then um, processing it, and then using, you know, this really was almost like an orange clay that would turn red at the end. Mm. So processing the clay, and then um, firing it. And I really like this process. And then I also with the same instructor, the same professor, went down to Mexico and went to Mata Ortiz and worked with Juan Casada. And what I started to recognize was that even though there was such a big distance between the two artists, um, Juan and Maria, though the work was made very similarly. Right. So like the processing to how they build the forms, both of them would build these um, kind of hollow 
spheres, right? And work with the air inside of the form. And um, I had never seen anybody d done that, you know? So you build something up from a cylinder to like a, a circuit, like a cylinder, and then you'd work, you know, you would close that in on itself and make some kind of a hollow form. And, um, you know, it made sense because I had ceramics classes, but I started to work similarly that way, not in the same way, but that's how I work now to this day is by building a cylinder, closing it off, making a circle and paddling it. Mm. So that's kind of the introduction that I had to play, which is very different. And then the, the funny thing is at the same time, I was taking a, um, a porcelain class, learning how to throw using a traditional um, Japanese style of throwing, which was called the Rita method. And in that class, we were like using porcelain and firing to cone 10, um, so very, very different introduction to yeah. play as a material. Yeah. What, a, what an opportunity to be out West and to see these folks that have probably been making work in a similar vein for thousands of years. And as you mentioned, the, the people in Mexico and the people in New Mexico, that was one people, right? <laughs> before, this, before we confiscated the land. Yeah, that's really a really wonderful opportunity to have seen that because we as we study these little broken pieces of pottery, you know, understanding like how the people's hands were manipulating yeah, the clay and things like that is missing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you know about Juan Casada, but he didn't grow up right. Um, doing pottery. He would actually walk through the cornfields and this is just uh, me telling you what I've heard from the stories from reading about him and then going there and, and talking through an interpreter with him. But he actually would, you know, as a, I guess it was like a teenager would walk the cornfields and he would find shards and he would pick them up. And he was so curious. He just kept finding all these shards like, okay, like how were these built? And he had curiosity about it. So he said, well, if all this clay is, was here, all these pots were here, there has to be like clay. So he found a area that had clay and he went and he dug it up and then he started to try to figure out how to process it. Right. And there was nobody around that could kind of tell him nobody in his town was doing this method. So he kind of refigured out this whole way of working with the material. He found the clay, he processed it, and then he started making work and he started to figure out how to fire it or how he could fire it. And, you know, he was just kind of fooling around. And then um, one of the pieces, so the story goes, ended up in a, like, let's say antique shop or Goodwill <laughs> shop. And the archaeologist went into the shop and he found Juan's experimental piece. And he said, who made this? And somebody said, oh, you know, it's this fellow Juan. He's making all sorts of pots out at, you know, his house or whatever. And he said, take me to him. And so the archaeologist knew a lot about a, um, a group of individuals that had been there. I think it's in Pacame. Um, mm that were, there were a native, a group of natives there, and they were making pottery that was really similar. And this work that Juan had made looked really similar to the historic Pacame work. And so they started talking and, you know, Juan, this is before internet and Juan wasn't really, you know, this is a really small Mexican town. So there's like not a library, they don't have internet. Mm -hmm. So um, 
this archaeologist started talking to Juan and he started saying, well, did you know about this, you know, group of people in Pacame that made these pots and let me take you to them. Let me show you them. And then they started a relationship and, and Juan basically rebirthed this whole um, way of working with ceramics. And now if you go to Mata Ortiz, there's several families that make pots in this traditional way and make their livelihood and travel the world teaching other people how to make this work. And that's why I was lucky enough to go to the class because um, Juan wanted people to see how the original process was so it could stay alive. And it was really similar to um, when we worked in Anacama, why we were allowed there because they wanted the story to live. They wanted the tradition to live. So that's a little bit about the story of Mano Ratisse and Juan Casada and how that came to be. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a really good story. So I may or may not um, put this last part in it, but I've been feeling as a maker, at even doing this um, podcast and working as an archaeologist and feeling like, what, what, am I, what am I doing? There's this, you know, history's being made violently on the streets of Minneapolis right now um, and, you know, and other places in the country. And uh, what am I, what are we doing? Like making art, <laughs> you know, it's like, do you ever feel like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It, it, do you think, do you think expressing yourself artistically in this way is contributing to the betterment of society or are we just kind of like, living the privilege of being able to have this option in our life of making art for a living. Does that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a doozy of a question. What do you think, Pavel? Oh, I think it's the latter. <laughs> I think we do it for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, now, you know, those objects might survive. You know, this is like the grand scheme of things and they might provide like you know you're studying pottery right you, all, all this material culture provides a window on what was going on now there was no other every way of recording culture right but maybe we're just providing another alternative record right yeah. but in terms of affecting change I, I you know not us maybe a filmmaker <laughs> horror films maybe horror. yeah that's right <laughs> That was great, guys. Thank you so much. I think we could wrap it up there. That was excellent. Thanks, Nigel. Thanks for being Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, yeah, Pavel. Yeah, baby. Thank you to Tammy and Pavel for being on the episode this week. I, I totally forgot to mention where can you find them on the web. And uh, I'll, of course, link to everything in the show notes, but you can find more information about Tammy Marinuzzi Ceramics at TammyMarinuzzi.com. That's T-A-M-M-Y-M-A-R-I-N-U-Z-Z-I.com, Tammy Marinuzzi. There you can see great images of some of her latest work and also this really fascinating project that she's been working on for a couple of years called the Pondy Walk. All that information is on her website. It's really, really cool stuff. You can find out more information about Pavel. I'm Roman, and I highly encourage you to check out some of these dog, um, the Toy Soldier Collection dog sculptures that I was referring to in the interview. It's really awesome stuff. But you can find him at pavelamroman.com, P-A-V-E-L-A-M-R-O-M-I-N.com. 
So really cool stuff there. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in again to this episode, final episode of this little mini What's on Nigel's Shelves solo cast miniseries will be out next Friday. So be sure to check that one out. It'll be good, I hope. On behalf of my co-host for the regular Materialist Podcast episodes, Becky O'Sullivan, Public Archaeology Coordinator for the FPAN West Central Region, thank you very much. For more information on FPAN, please go to fpan.us. As always, thanks to Have Gun Will Travel for the use of their song. You can check out more information about them at hgwtmusic.com. Also, Wednesday evenings, every Wednesday evening, Matt Burke, lead singer of Have Gun, does a little solo web-based performance, um, and you can find out that on their Facebook page, which is HGWT Music as well, so check that out. Um, If you have any questions for us, if you'd like to holler at us and just say howdy, uh, give us a shout at materialistpodcast at gmail.com. All right, guys, have a great week, and we'll catch you all on the flippity-flip.